We've got two themes for our show tonight. It's our special player pool episode where we break down some of what stats and what positions to get where for value. And we'll also start on our undervalued ATC players previewing some potential bargains this week at the catcher position. FSWA Hall of Famer Todd Zola joins us next on Beat the Shift. Welcome to another episode of the Beat the Shift podcast. I am your host, Ariel Cohen, and with me as always is Ruvain Guy. How are you, Ruvain? I'm doing great. How are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. Happy ATC Day to you. Joyous holiday to you. How are you doing, Ruvain? I'm doing well today. What does that exactly mean to you? <laughs> well, the ATC projections have hit the first cut. Uh, are uh, here. Um, a bunch of my sites that have it, uh, CBS Sportsline, Rotoballer, and of course on Fangraphs. And especially awesome today is that uh, the ATC projections now include war. You can actually get a war per player, uh, which nice. is kind of interesting. So very excited. And how often will they be updated, do you think? So uh, for the first uh, month or so, it's going to be uh, probably once a week. Uh, the first week, just to get out a bunch of errors, probably going to do it every couple of days. Uh, and as we get uh, all the way into March, it's going to be two or three times a week. So uh, you'll, you'll see it come fast and furious. Uh, we're hoping, of course, that the uh, season starts on time. Spring training will go, so we'll, we'll get more information to make better updates. But uh, that is the plan, Ruvain. Very cool. Sounds great. Well, we've got a great show today. Uh, the, this next guest, well, he writes at so many different places you can't even mention all of them uh, without running out of the clock here. Uh, but his home base is uh, Masters Ball, and uh, he is an FSWA Hall of Famer, the one, the only. He's been on our show before, but welcome back, Todd Zola. How are you doing, Todd? Gee, I'm doing all right now. Places I used to write for would take forever. But we're now just we're down to Rotowire and ESPN. It's not so bad. All right. A couple cool. of sites I think people have heard of. Yes, 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 definitely. Um, and we're glad you could join us for the show. Uh, as we are accustomed to on the show, we just jump right into it in our strategy section tonight. Uh, before we talk a little bit about the player pool, which is our theme for tonight, we're going to talk just a little bit about projections, which uh, you do projections over at Masters Ball. Um, and just wanted to ask you, what, what is new for your projections, or have you changed any of your, your methodology heading into 2022? Yeah, I bought a new set of darts this year. So, yeah, the old <laughs> ones are getting dull, so I got a new set. Nice. Um, well, not really a whole lot new. There are some new expected data, expected stats out there, which I'm incorporating in some regression levers. There are We're still dealing with 2020, the short season, 2019, the happy fun ball. So there's uh, maybe more massaging than I've done in, in previous seasons. I guess the big change is on the pitching side. I'm I'm paying a lot more attention to logical left on base percentage and logical BABIP. I used to just kind of do the projection, let it fall where they may. But uh, in order to get those two numbers, you, you need to project plate appearances and at bats. And that's I thought yeah, it's kind of sketchy. It's more of you know it's another guess, and I don't know if it was worth it. So I, I thought this year let's make it worth it. Let's see if it helps any to. After doing the projection, check out the left on base percentage and the BABIP and bring those into the you know logical 
areas because those those are not out of control of the pitcher you guys know that but they're there there's less control you know regression takes over so that that's the main change having to go through pretty much every pitcher one by one to make sure the BABIP and their left on base percentage are logical right a C- couple of questions that, that that i get myself about projections in general is number one how have you treated the designated hitter in the national league are we are you going to assume it in 2022 even though we did not have it last year and the other question is have you adjusted for uh baltimore uh, where Baltimore decides that they are going to move the wall back and make it higher. And, of course, the fact that the Toronto Blue Jays, hoping to go full-time back to the Rogers Center, ha- have you uh, adjusted for that at all? Yeah. Now, as far as the DH goes, um, I'm a- this might be the last week I'm doing with my own projections. I'm actually providing pitchers with and without the DH. Hitters was too much work to carry through two playing time grids, so I'm not – I'm just doing, assuming there is going to be a DH. Um, looking at my the downloads of people who are using which set of stats and just what other people are using now that other sites are, are doing work, et cetera, most everybody is projecting uh, with an NLDH. Uh, Derek Cardi, the bat, you mentioned ATC. These things are, a lot of these, that they're just making that assumption. So I think I'm going to do that now, and I'm going to assume that there is going to be a universal DH. And what what I have to do then is, is we kind of mentioned on the hitting side, just you have to account for the at-bats. There's just another batting place in this batting order and count for the at-bats and maybe a little bit higher offense. So the run and RBI index maybe go up a little bit. So if you're going to project Mookie bets for 100 runs, maybe now it gets 103 or something like that, just as an example. But the pitching's where you got to really make the difference because to do projections, you need to sort of you need to neutralize what the player did, what the pitcher did, and that's taking out the park and taking out any of the the weird stuff that went on that particular season. So if we're projecting every NL pitcher to face a DH, you need to neutralize their stats from the previous seasons as if they faced a DH. Now, of course, they did in 2020 so that one's taken care of but you had to adjust when 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 you neutralize you're going to neutralize 2019 and 2021 as if they faced a dh and then you can do your weighted averages and bring them up and et cetera et cetera et cetera so it's it's spreadsheet work so it's it's easier it's actually easier than batters because you don't have to carry through two playing time grits so the 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 computer does the work for me you have to figure out you know what what's the difference well, you, you know, you actually walk fewer batters when you face a DH because you're not intentionally walking so many. So, you know, their walk rates actually go down or, well, actually will go up with the DH. But strikeouts and home runs, you know, th- those suffer. So you make those adjustments and see what happens. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, uh, Derek Cardi uh, messages me and he's like, hey, Ariel, are you are you using the, the uh, DH in the NL? And I'm like, well. You know, so far it looks like most projection systems, at least on fan graphs, had not yet. Uh, so I'm like, let me let me get back to you for a second. And I called up uh, Jared Cross, and I spoke to uh, Jason Martinez, who does um, some of the playing time over fan graphs. Mm-hmm. And we basically got to get, we all got together, and we made the determination. You know what? We're all going to change over. We're all just going to make it full DH in the NL. Uh, so that 
it just just got together because we, we had to talk about it. And, and the truth of the matter is, you know, if we think it's going to happen, um, it, it's better to do the most likely outcome. Um, it, kudos to you for, for carrying both all this time, by the way. Well, the other the other aspect of it is people are drafting as if there will be a DH. So from a practical point of view, which is, you know, from a you know business efficiency in my business, which is better to spend an extra hour preparing two sets or to spend that hour on fresh content, you know? Yeah. So that's kind yeah. of the decision I made. And we'll see what happens if we get, if it turns out that, you know, it goes the other way. You know, this yeah. time last year, we had a discussion. We probably would have said there's going to be a DH. That's but true. as we, we know how that turned out, um, ESPN, we're going with, you know, assuming a DH and we'll see what happens there too. But uh, you, you talked about, you asked about uh, Toronto and Baltimore. Um, well, Toronto's the easy one. I mean, you just have to make kind of estimate a park factor to neutralize last year's uh, numbers in Buffalo and in, in Dunedin, and then just use the standard park factor for Rogers Center, which because it's a dome, it's fairly, I mean, no park factors are stable, but it's more stable because it is a dome. I guess it depends which way they have the air conditioning blowing. But at least from that end of you know the, the trickiness is how do you how did you, you know, neutralize last year's with Buffalo and Dunedin and those are both hitters parks and there wasn't enough data to come up with a number so it's kind of hand waving. See Baltimore's going to be interesting because you've seen the Twitter you've seen all the overlays you've seen well Mancini loses this and Hayes loses that they're only talking about home runs and the best numbers I saw were between fourteen and nineteen percent. Of a, de- of, a, of a decline. And it's not all right-handed batters because you, lefties that go opposite field, and I know o- Odor, rooting at Odor and Cedric Mullins don't, so you don't have to worry about them. But other lefties that go the other way, they're going to actually be hurt more, not on a per home run, but on a relative basis, percentage basis, because you don't hit the ball as far the other way. So a righty can still clock it and get it over the fence, but a lefty's going to lose home runs too. So it's, it's, it's just a guess based upon that 14 to 19%. But here's the catch. All we're talking about is home runs. We don't know how the park's going to play in terms of runs. Fewer homers doesn't necessarily mean proportionately fewer runs. You've seen the the design, the right angle with the bullpen and the the jetting out. That's going to be a tough, tough left field to play. It's going to give more hits. It's going to allow for more hits. Is the center fielder going to have to move over because to back up the left fielder with that quirky field out there and leave right field a little bit you know more open? I I don't I don't know how it's going to play. We can guess home runs, but we're hand waving hits and runs. Yeah, I don't think people are thinking about that. I think people just go, oh, it's going to you know they're going to hit fewer homers. Well, I think they're going to I think they're going to get more base hits and doubles and triples. I mean the triples and they're going to be triples. In that, and you know, we're, I don't, I don't know that anybody's actually hit a triple in Camden Yards yet. Yeah, I, I yeah. think the next one might be the first. But uh, of course, you know, a little hyperbole there. But um, you know, you can see some weird stuff going on. So I, I, I think we have to. Yeah, all right. Yeah, Santander is going to hit fewer homers, but I think these guys are going to have an improved batting average, and I don't think it's going to help pitching as much as many people into it. I just, you know, maybe Jonathan Means, because his main issue is home runs, he gets helped. But some of these guys, uh, they're going to be giving up more hits. There's going to be fewer outs. And I, I think that they're, uh, I think that, that, I don't know how it's going to play. But my gut says I'm wary of runs not dropping so much in Cannon Yards. 
So is that going to mean that it's going to be much harder to stomach rostering any Baltimore pitcher besides John Means? I mean, um, relievers, their relievers are a crapshoot anyway. You don't know who's going to be a closer there. You don't know what's going to go on there. But, I mean, even the starting pitchers, if they're going to be more runs— that's more of a chance of a, of a blow-up. That's, that's more of almost like a, a Colorado-type setting. Well, they don't have anybody other than means to actually talk about, right? I mean, if there was, it, 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 it would have been an interesting conversation if there was someone on the borderline. So today's uh, episode is uh, called the Player Pool episode. And, um, you know, I, I've gone to the regional first pitch forums, and I've heard you do a great job talk about what you see this year. And I wanted to really pick your brain about uh, certain aspects of the player pool. Let's start with starting pitchers, Todd. Um, you know, in, in recent past, we, we've seen the starting pitcher player pool been very top-heavy. Uh, we've seen these very seemingly low-risk pitchers at the very top. Um, and consequently, the ace starters have been pushed up. Um, it seems that that's happening again this year, although I see quite a bit more risk at the very top, which might make me more intrigued to take pitchers in the middle. Um, you know, question is, what have you observed, and how do you think you're going to be tackling starting pitching going into 2022? Well, I think the observation is spot on. I, you, we've got – you got to – your Jacob DeGroms and your Chris Sales with the injuries that are contributing to that. Garrett Cole with the sticky stuff. I mean, we can go on and on. But I, there is a bit more risk up top. And you can, you know, Cor- Corbin Burns, his risk is he's only, you know, he's darn, is he so good? Look at the gifs. Look at the movement. He's only done it once. Well, maybe once in, you know, a year and a half. So there, there, I, I agree that there's the risk. And we have to, you know, need to point out that a lot of talk this time of year is NFBC because that's that's what's going on, and that I know a lot of people listen that play in home leagues, etc. And it's a different environment. Pitching, you, you mentioned the, the low risk. NFBC is also a monkey see monkey do sort of thing, and people had success drafting pitching early, so the the lemmings started to draft pitching early just because there's some of that involved as well. So just have to keep in mind. When you're looking at an ADP, if it's NFBC, it's its own, it's its own entity, it's its own economy. Uh, but having said that, I do agree with the uh, the, the overall assessment. There's just, just there's a lot of risk up at the top, and there's just uncertainty with innings and Jack Flaherty. You know, another you know one of those riskier type pitches. Zach Wheeler has thrown you know 200 innings so many years in a row, except for 2020, of course. And my research has shown that it's very very difficult to do it a fourth year. But he's done it for three. So what do you project Zach Wheeler? Do you project 180 because other pitchers in the same boat have only thrown 180? Or, geez, the guy's done 200 for this many years. He's going to do 200 again. I mean, maybe not exactly 200, but that sort of theory. So I, I agree that there is some risk. But the way I approach pitching, and you, I think you've you heard me say it and it, it probably in one of the, the seminars you just mentioned, my, my motto is uh, draft the pitcher, not the round. And you hear so many people say, well, I'm not taking a pitcher to the fourth, or I have to get a pitcher by the end of the second. The way I think you need to approach pitching is I don't target draft. I don't believe in it. But what I will do is kind of figure out where I want my ERA and my whip to be at the end of the draft. And I'll design several pathways to get there. And maybe I'll have an ace pathway. And what I what I need to supplement my ace with, I'll have a I'll have non ace. I'll have two guys in the second range to you know bang bang in the fourth and fifth round or whatever it might be. So I'll I'll construct several pathways that the end result 
is my target ERA, my target whip, and I'll include closers in these pathways. And now this is the draft the pitcher, not the round part, is if you, you, one of these pathways just happens upon you. If you're in a draft and you're ninth, ninth pick and Garrett Cole's on the board, well, there you, I'm going my ace pathway. Uh, you know, if he's not there and you, you, you don't get a pitch until the third round, well, I'm using this pathway. And the point being, though, if you're going to use the path, you can't, if, if, if that tier of pitchers going, if you need, if you need, I'm trying to think of a name, um, kind of a second, uh, if you need uh, Logan Webb to make it work, and, oh, man, I can't draft Logan Webb here. He's, his ADP is, is, is another round. I can't take him. Well, you have to take him there. You, to make your plan work, don't draft the round. You have to draft the pitcher when the market is taking him. Okay. Moving, your thoughts? I was actually taking a look at the ADP right now for the NFBC. And right now I only saw about eight or nine starting pitchers going in the first two rounds. Last year, I only, I only, only, well, last year, I think they were closer to 10, 11, even 12 going in the first two rounds. So I think people are a little bit concerned about that risk and they're backing off just a little bit just because there are so many question marks on these top guys and there's really no certainty and the injury one out of two pitchers get hurt during the course of a season. If that happens, there's so much risk there. But there are still people who are going to go after it. And I think the lockout, if, if the lockout goes um, far, uh, a couple weeks into the season, it puts, I think, even more value on these starting on these top starting pitchers just because how many innings are you going to get out of the second-tier guys if they're not going to be completely built off of their shortened spring training? It makes these top-tier guys that much more expensive, and, and I think that much more worth it. Yeah. So, uh, by the way, Zach Wheeler, you mentioned, he's actually the uh, highest innings projected pitcher that I have on ATC at 196. Uh, very yep. interesting that you mentioned it. But, yeah, I mean, that's that's the way projections go there. Um, you know, uh, I, I, I've, I've been a big proponent of you got to go where there's a good return on investment. And we have seen that in the past couple of years, the ace starting pitchers have returned a much better return on investments than, than some of the middle rounds. And, you know, it, it's it's hard to make the argument that just because it's happened, it means that in the future it, it, it will happen. But, uh, you know, I can see a point this year where there's a lot of great middle pitchers. We're talking Max Fried, Joe Musgrove, Kevin Gaussman, Frankie Montas, Dylan Cease. There's a lot of pitchers in the middle, and currently in the ADP, the pitchers are spread so much in every round that you can pick your own path. And I think that the value proposition where you say, I'm just going to take the best value proposition where it is and not worry, I need to get an ace in the first two rounds. I have to have an ace uh, a pitcher after the first three rounds. I think that you can let the value come to you. And if you have to draft the first three rounds hitters and then you go pitcher, pitcher, you can end up with more value that way. I, I would not have a you have to, have to uh, this year. I, I think that the return investment could be good in all rounds. That's my feeling here. Yeah, you know, outside the fact that I, I won't debate now, the word value is uh, is, is kind of inappropriate, but that's beside the well, point. Well, value is, yes, <laughs> well. <laughs> well, uh, we'll, 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 we'll save that. But uh, yeah, Valua no, agree, but Valuation. Valuation no, it, it, it's, it's potential. It's not value. It, 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 that, without it, it's values past tense. We don't know what the value is, but they, you can, there's, there's a lot of potential profit at that point. Sure. But as long as you know what else, you know, so you're drafting 
you know, your, your first pitchers in fourth and fifth, which is fine. As long as you know what else you need to make that work without the ace. Yeah, there, there are pathways to, to, to make it happen. And you don't, you don't need to finish, you know, 12 points in, in every pitching category. You can finish a little lower in pitching and just crush hitting and end up with the same number of points at the end. And then yes. th- it's actually a way to, do, it's actually a smart thing to do because as you know, uh, all it takes is one pitcher to emerge and you're suddenly getting 12 points yeah. because of you know one 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 out of seven starting pitchers has a you know two relievers has a lot more effect than you know than a out of nowhere second baseman because there's 14 bats and it's just a smaller percentage of the overall contribution but one starting pitcher that comes you know comes out of nowhere can really really help you a lot um that's something else i forgot what it was going to be if it comes to me it comes to me at this point i don't know but I, I don't I don't recall. But oh yeah, that's what is uh you mentioned those pictures you rattled off. Maybe it's just my rankings versus the market. But you mentioned, you know, second or third and whatever you middle guys. A lot of those guys were in my top fifteen. So yeah. not I mean so I don't know that they're I don't know that they're middle guys. They're just end of the first round, early second round guys as opposed to uh uh, top 15. So that's the other way in, you know, to, you know, to use word value, that's the way to get your value or your, your higher potential return on investment. If you, if, if you I make up, I don't know that I do, but if, if you've got Logan Webb or Kevin Gossman ranked 11th or 12th and the market's drafting them 17th or 18th, well, you now have your SP one, you know, at an SP two price. So you can, you can still, you know, that's, that's another way to approach it. Yeah. The current ADP in the NFBC, there are four starting pitchers in the first round. There are four starting pitchers in the second round, five in the third, four in the next, four in the next, five in the next, four in the next. It's pretty spread through. Uh, the pitchers I rattled off are fourth, fifth round pitchers. So uh, you you can find uh, a path to uh, to working the starting pitchers anywhere. You can take an, uh, the 15th starting pitcher in the third round. That's your SP1. You don't have to get that ace is what I'm saying this year. Yep. yep. Um, with closers, though, we're seeing something very, very strange. Now, closers, um, it's it bounced around over the past couple of years where closers pushed up, closers pushed back. Uh, it is pushed up to no tomorrow. And part of the reason is it's early. Um, it, we're early on here. Uh, a lot of people are doing the more draft and hold uh, especially in the NFBC where we're generating ADP, it's draft and hold type. So you can't pick up anything on the waiver wires in the middle of the year. And we're seeing Josh Hader, Liam Hendricks going in round two. It, it's crazy to see a closer there. But uh, the reason why you're seeing that is saves are very variable nowadays. They're hard to find for your fantasy teams. The lower supply of sure things. And that's why you're propping up the demand to going there. Um, so the questions for you, Todd, is first, do you think that it is economical to pay this steep market premium for closers to push it up that much? But also, could you tell us a little bit about what you think the closer pool looks like? And I'm thinking not so much towards the top. How, how do you see the middle and late closers going this year? And where do you think the value is? So I, had, I wrote about this. Uh, it, it came up on Rotowire today, uh, mentioned just this, this whole thing with the closers being pushed up. Um, you, you know, they are, they are draft champions there for the issue. So you say, I'm nervous. I don't, I don't know that I'm going to speculate. I can't get a guy on fab. Therefore, I'm going to lock down my saves, but at what cost? And the other question that no one's asking is what do I need? What do I need to compete in a draft championship? And this may be surprising. 
Um, how many saves do you think, you know, the old, you know, how many saves do you think, I, will, I, won't, I won't play guessing games, um, you need about 50 to 55 saves. The, 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 the top three last year, 2021, the top three in each league averaged 50 to 55 saves. And I don't know that you need to lock down 35 of them in the second round. I know it's risky trying to find them later, but you don't need 80, 85, 90. I mean, you need 90 saves to win the category. You don't need to win the category. The, the champion, the teams that cashed in the NFPC, NFPC DC finished in around ninth with around nine points in saves. You just don't need to, you know, to, to lock down 35 saves. And I know Hader and Hendricks will help ratios. I'm kind of leading that crusade. I understand that. But to me, it's an, what you're leaving on the board, the opportunity cost. I'll take my chance. You know, I'll take my chances. If I miss out, all right, I missed out. But I just I think you're going to miss out on more by not taking the stud hitter, the pitcher. I know in a DC, it's as much attrition, so you can counter the argument. Maybe you're going to. You can counter the argument with I'm not as concerned in draft championship because it's all about attrition anyway. So I'm going to draft a really deep hitting lineup. So I'm I'm not going to lose as much oomph at the top because I'm going to make up for it with my depth later and multiple position eligibility. But even so, to me, if I need 50 saves, I don't know why I need to get 35 of them in the second round. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I, I often bring up the jewelry store um, uh terminology or, or metaphor, I should say. Uh, but, you know, let's say you're going to a grocery store and everybody is charged with you got to have a complete meal. You got to have your entree and your appetizer and a dessert and a bottle of wine. And maybe the saves are, are the dessert. And you go to the store and the desserts are just not as good as they used to be. So everyone's like, OK, well, I got to have a fabulous dessert because I can't leave my leave my guests coming at the end uh, without anything. And everyone's, oh, i got to pay up for the desserts. But you say to yourself, well, it's just a dessert at the end. It's just the last thing. What in the world do I have to pay all that much for? Uh, and that's sort of how I feel here. I think that the value that you're getting by sacrificing a second-round pick uh, is, is tremendous. You know, we, talk, we talk a little bit about uh, – uh, a lot here about categorical risk that you know, what, what happens if you have that Josh Hader and he gets hurt? You are, you are screwed. Um, you know, the replacement level uh, of that is going to be much, much lower, and you're not getting that second-round hitter that you could have gotten otherwise. Um, you know, when when closers were pushed up to the fourth round and that was steep, well, everyone was doing it. That was an appropriate market premium. I think that the market premium this year is insane, uh, and I would advise against paying that. I think that the better play here is to pick some gems in the middle rounds, to throw more quantity over quality at the end, um, and to take advantage of the fact that, yes, as you mentioned, Todd, there are fewer saves, but also that a lot of middle relievers and relievers that have high skills count even more these days, especially since there's less innings in total. Those relievers yep. count a lot at the end. So they're valuable even if they don't close. I think I'd rather take those darts for that overall value. Anything to add, Ruvain? Yeah, besides that, why would you want to have a reliever in the second round or in the beginning of the third round instead of getting a starting pitcher? If you get a starting pitcher, you're getting more bulk stats. You're getting a, a, your bulk stats for... ERA, whip, strikeouts, and wins are not coming from the closer. The closer you're getting, it's a, it's one category. Yes, you can have a guy like Hendricks who will get a ton of strikeouts, but and and he can equal a number five starter. He could, 
equal a number five starter. But if he doesn't, like, let's say you, you plan on getting Edwin Diaz last year and he just didn't pan out because he didn't strike out the guys you wanted to. You could have had a starter there that fills out your stats in ERA, in whip, in wins, in strikeouts. And you're like you said, Ari, you're leaving so much value on the table. I mean, you really want to take a Liam Hendricks in the second round or a Josh Hader in the second round over a Teoscar Hernandez who can carry your team over a um, an Aaron Judge who can be an MVP, who who can who can also carry your team offensively. It it just doesn't make any sense to me. This is it's the highest it's ever been, and it it because the closers are so fickle, and because closers can lose their job just like that. You don't have any trust in them. I'd rather, just like you said, quantity over quality, draft four closers, but they don't have to be in the first couple rounds because if you get four closers, if you get an average of 10 saves from those four closers later on, you're good. You're going to get to that 55-save plateau. So I want to move to corner infielders, and uh, let's do this a little bit quickly here, uh, especially since we've talked a lot about this on the show here. I'll go to you first, Ruvain, just to uh, confirm here. Um, you know, we've seen that the first base uh, pool is a little bit deeper here in 2022. Um, I think just upon inspection of the ATC projections, there's some nice bargains later on that make me think, you know, why would I in a straight draft take Freddie Freeman in the first round, early second round? Um, he's a great player. He's solid. He's low risk. I get that. But you're passing up the opportunity to get a huge bargain later on. Um, whereas in third base, third base drops off quite a bit. And I think my observation is that the player pool for third base is much worse than usual. Um, by my Z-scores, I look at Z-scores for replacement level. I get a negative uh, 3.9 this year. Back in 2019, 3.4, 3.3 in 2018. So the, the real worth of the bottom third baseman really has gone down, enough that it really should push up those third basemen. Jose Ramirez, to me, might be more intriguing than Juan Soto uh, because that third, position, third base position is hard to fill out later on, and you don't want to buy somebody in the middle when you need to take some steals or some saves or some starting pitching. Um, so I, I kind of think that uh, third base is uh, something that you really need to address quickly. Rafael Devers, uh, he's looking pretty good in projections. He might be a good early second rounder to cut. Um, take a chance on Anthony Rendon. Uh, take Nolan Arenado, who's going to bank stats. But really address it. Don't go out of the, the 10th round without getting your third baseman. Uh, but the first baseman, you can actually wait till much, much, much later. Do you, do you agree with that, Ruvain? Yes, and you can get a lot of bargains at first play, at first base also. If you want to get a guy at first base who hits 20, 25 home runs and won't kill your batting average, you can get a, a, a C.J. Krohn um, later on. You can get a Bobby Dahlbeck, a Frank Schwindel who's going very cheap. You can get you can go some, someone like that. Third base, after you finished, after you passed the first top 10 third baseman, you're looking at going after Ryan McMahon, who's eligible there, Heimer Candelario. You're looking at Matt Chapman. You're looking at Eduardo Escobar. Do you want those guys? You're gonna first of all, you're gonna have to overpay for them. Number one, number two, first base. You, you when people think of corner, you think of power. First base would have power. They're not the, the what you're losing at third base is value, and I think that third base is very very shallow, and you can even wait even longer. Like why not even wait till you get to go even farther down? You want to get an, an average. Guy Guy. Look, stick Luis Arias at, at third base. Spend one dollar and overspend it, and spend more. Let's say in the outfield because you're not going to get that much if you're not going to get one of those top ten to twelve third basemen. Todd, thoughts? 
Uh, I agree with the general consensus and, and the, the layer of the pool. Where I may disagree slightly. Well, first, I'm not. If if Freeman or uh, is the best player in on board, I will take him because I still have a corner and I still have utility to to to, to get the bargain a little bit later. Unless you know, if there's two guys that are tied or close to tied, sure, I'll, I may fade the first baseman and and get one later. But I think that the the deal with third base is there's there's no quality at the top but i i do think it's it's kind of like second base has been i think there's enough you met you, you mentioned uh ruben about you know getting these guys at the end i yeah you don't want a one dollar or 23rd round third baseman but if he's ranked if that's his if, if he's if that's where he's ranked if that's the, if that's you know where his value is if you will then yeah i mean you, you you're not overpaying I don't think you have to overpay for the lower end. I think there's enough at the lower end that you don't have to egregiously push up a Manny Machado or a Devers. If they're going to fall into your lap, I mean, yeah, Ty's going to the third baseman. But I'm not going to panic and, and and push up a third baseman just because there will be somebody at some point by the end of 23 rounds that's at the top of my list that is out you know that's a, it's also available it may not be to the 17th round but they'll be there especially because as you guys know once you get past the 10th or 11th round i mean the, the the next five rounds are essentially the same when you if you use your dollar value to to rank if you sort by dollar value it gets to a point where uh you know at, at the beginning the, there's a 15 dollar difference between the first player and the last player drafted in the first round the, uh, there's there's a one dollar difference between the first and last player in the later rounds, so they're essentially the same. So, uh, yeah, I, I may reach a little bit in the middle, but as long as I have the guy graded as one of the top, whatever it is, fifteen and a couple utilities, top twenty third baseman, I'm fine with it. it. I get what I expect. I just don't expect a lot. And now you have, you know, you got the season to upgrade that spot. But I do agree, Ramirez. I mean, he's my second or third player right now, and um, and it just comes without even giving a positional bump. You know, I I would if I leave a draft with Jose Ramirez, I'm pretty happy. Yeah, the only counter to that is, you know, I, I mentioned that the replacement level is lower than usual. Um, when the replacement level is lower than usual, if you settle for the dollar at the bottom, the replacement or somebody you're going to be fumbling around with at the bottom, if you're going to swap out or stream, is crappier than usual. It's like the catcher. Do you really want to get the 30th catcher as your second catcher? I don't because then you're fumbling around with garbage. Whereas if you had a, a one-catcher, 10-team league, well, I'm okay with get something at the bottom because the fumbling around is actually at a higher replacement level. So a little bit of a propensity to go a little yeah, bit more this year. What that's assuming that nobody juts out and, you know, overproduces at that range. That's, you know, you, you have to think positively. If I do get a, a lower third baseman and someone emerges, well, I'm the, the, the profit that I'm getting over where I drafted him is now huge. So the, the argument can go a, a lot of different ways. Yeah. The other thing, too, is... More often than not, you're not going to get your last one. The way the rankings go, you, if I if I need a top 15 guy, I'm not going to get my 15th. I'm probably going to get my 11th or 12th guy yeah. and at the cost of a 15th. It's taking a chance, but they're there. But, yeah, in general, and, and the, third, the there's, there's help on the way 
Josh Young, and uh, there there is help on the way in third base. So it this the way this things these things are they're cyclical. And one of the reasons first base is so strong is because guys like Vlad went over there. Yeah, no, yeah, that's true. That's true. All right, uh, middle middle infield, and the question to you, Todd, is uh, I'm not going to talk about the overall player pool other than steals. Um, do you think that you need to get steals from the middle infield, or can you say I'll get it elsewhere? I don't actually need a steals guy in the middle. How does that work for you? It really, if you don't, it forces you down that mile straw route, or you know a little bit deeper into somebody who isn't even going to produce as much as straw. It, it's, a, it's a supply and demand. It's not a position. It's not like, you know, use your, you know, your Z-scores to figure out position scarcity, but it's a statistical scarcity. There's just not a lot of steals available from other spots unless you're going to go the Rondell. I'm sorry, the Edelberto Wondesi road at third base. Now that he's a third baseman, imagine that. Um, but yeah, I think you, and this is where you can't just go by rankings. You, because players do, if you, if you do your dollar values and you rank, you sort accordingly, there's just so close that you just can't, oh, he's at the top of my list, going to take him. You do need to start looking for uh, players a little further down the list to address a need because they're essentially the same player. If they're within a dollar, they're $2, they're the same player. So I do think, I don't want to say always or never, but it certainly helps a lot if you can get some of your steals from second base because the only other place you're going to get them is the outfield you're not going to get them from first or third right and you're not going to you're, you're going to get them from the outfield and everybody's looking to get them from the outfield so i think you do need to address you need to i think you do i forcing it eh, but I, I think tie goes to the steal yeah i mean it's just a recognition of the player pool of that the steals are located in a certain spot. And if you're going to yep. go three three middle infielders, second, short, and in middle without steals, uh, who you're getting, you're, you're going to have to push up something. And so the value proposition is probably better if you do have at least one nice chunk from a middle infield spot. Any yeah. disagreement, Ruben? No, I think we – and we've been doing this – for years, we've always been saying you want your power from your corners and speed up the middle. And it's and it, the pool hasn't changed. It's just the way the way people think about it. I mean, for yeah. years, the shortstop and second baseman was where you get your stolen bases. The center fielder is where you get your center is, is where you get your stolen bases. So the pool hasn't changed. You still have to get them, and you have to get them early because otherwise you're going to be you know grasping at sh- um, straws literally both in the outfield and down down low in the middle infield. Yeah, and when we put uh, when Ruben and I put our auction strategies together for every single auction we do, um, you know, I'm not too concerned about is it a shortstop that's going to be twenty dollars or is it a second baseman going to be twenty dollars. We basically put down three middle infield spots. We put down we want a twenty five dollar one, a ten dollar one, or a five dollar one. And it's not that we want that number; it's we see that there's potentials for a bargain at those spots, and those are hot spots. We might get it, so let's put down a couple of names that would fit. But one of those slots has to go to speed. And we do that also at the outfield. One of the spots has to be dedicated to a guy who must get speed. It's something you just got to ensure yourself as you're playing at an auction and the same methodology in a draft. Um, last player pool question, outfielders. Um, question to you is, um, A, is how does the strength of the outfield position compare to previous seasons? But the bigger question to you, Todd, is, do you look in a draft to grab outfielders early, especially, 
think that you can wait on them late, or do you intentionally spread them out uh, throughout the draft? Do you say, I'm just going to go where the value is? H- how do you work the outfield? Do you, do you even have a strategy for when you take outfielders? I don't shy away early. Uh, you want to leave... You want to leave a couple of either you know spots on your your auction roster or your draft roster late because as we mentioned everybody's going to rank players differently and it's usually the outfield just because there's so many of them that you're going to find that you have differences of the in the room and you can get guys with a higher profit margin because you have them ranked higher than the room but i'm not going to shy away from them early to leave those spots because there's five spots in a utility and there's there's so much multiple multiple eligibility now as well uh, I don't, I don't shoot for one either. Uh, we, we're talking about speed. Um, you know, I, I have to get one of the top, you know, speedy outfielders. You know, like Acuna, uh oh, or Betts, uh oh. Point, you know, the the, 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 I'm gonna address speed early. The inventory to do that is risky this year. We don't know. It used to, used to be able to say Trout in that in that same breath. We're not sure. It's just the the we, we're not exactly sure. Or the, the, the number of you know forty dollar thirty five dollar outfielders that contribute fifteen to thirty fifteen to twenty five steals. Well, there's injury issues or other issues this year. That you know that that inventory is has been depleted. So it's going to be real interesting how people do address steals. But and the other thing we, we you find is you know on the best played plans. This always sounds so good on paper, and you can do it in DCs. But you, towards the end, you get with the platoon guys. So I like to focus on, and this is where valuation is flawed because it assumes that players are active every day of the year. But if you're taking a guy, um, you know, I'll use my old friend Cole Calhoun, who's going to hit much better against right-handed pitching, and you're only going to play him against right-handed pitching, his slash line, is, his you know value when he's in the lineup is higher than it's going to be on a cheat sheet. So I, what, I, what I do like to do at the end is try to find players who have some, you know, leverageable split, whether it's a good home park, maybe, you know, this is where we, the Baltimore guys might come into play or, or even Colorado, or, uh, you know, uh, just just being a left-handed batter and in the NFBC with the three and four day roster uh, changes, you get three righties up, well, this, this he's going in. So I, that's one of the things I do try to do. And it's, it's we talk about doing the main event, but then you get two speculative closers and two guys are hurt and you get a stream and a starter. You just don't have the bench spots to do it, but you can do it in a DC. Ruvain, uh, what are your thoughts and plan about when to grab an outfielder? Well, last year it seemed like the outfield player pool was so shallow and so many people were getting hurt. Um, so many top of the top outfielders were getting hurt that I think it's best not, you can't, you can't shy away from those top guys, but there's so much value in the middle of the outfield pool right now. Mitch Hanniger, you can get at a good at a, at a nice price. Carl Schwarber, you can get a good nice price. Alex Verdugo, who's a good for your average, you can get at a nice price. Those three guys, they may not be those top guys, but if they fill out your outfield as let's say your two, three, and four spots, and you get a top guy with that, then you're good to go. The problem is, is that last year so many people got hurt. And it just seemed like when you're going on, on looking at the uh, going for free agents, looking at looking who's available, who's available, it looked like there was nothing available there. All you had were platoon guys. You have to find the guys who are also not only platoon to start. Otherwise, you're going to end up with both sets of uh, what happened to me. I ended up both sets of platoon in San Francisco, where you have you have oh actually all three of them. You have um Austin, you had Austin Slater, you had um. 
uh, Demonte uh, Demonte Wade, uh, Lamonte Wade, and and it was just you, you had to plan and and use their splits to your advantage. Like just like Todd said, if you know they're going to play a couple lefties, you 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 set your lineup this way. And some and if you don't get those middle guys and you lose out on the top guys and you're stuck at the bottom, you're in deep trouble. So see, what, what what's happening too is multiple eligibility. There are more outfielders filling in for your injured infielder than ever before because they're a better batter than the backup infielders are. So that puts the scarcity to the outfield, at least fantasy wise, because there's so many dual, you know, second base outfield, third base outfield, first base outfield playing middle and corner now compared to previously. Yeah, uh, that is what's going on, and it is affecting the the uh, player pool. Um, as I said with third base, that there's a trend downward in the replacement level. The same thing is true about outfield, whereas middle infield has pretty much stayed the same. So relatively speaking, we are seeing that outfielders are getting worse, meaning that formulaically they should be bumped up a little bit more. You know, as far as spreading spreading it, um, you know, in general, you want to go where the value is. But as I often say, you know, y- you want to be able to put yourself in a position to get a bargain at every price point. You know, in an auction, it's especially true. You want to have the ability to get a $30 outfielder, the ability to get a $20 outfielder, the ability to get some bargains at the $10 level. And if you say, I have to get big ones or I have to get small ones, you're just not going to be playing everywhere, and you won't afford yourself the ability to get those bargains. I mean, imagine if you didn't have a $1 outfield spot. You're going to miss that $7 outfield that comes up that it costs one. Right. Uh, it's Todd alluded to this, but, you know, if, if you have no outfield spots open in your auction at somewhere at the end of the draft, at the end of the auction, you, there's going to be a guy. Oh, he's worth seven dollars. Oh, I can't buy him. I pro And that's a six dollar bargain. If well, maybe you like the guy earlier, but if he only produced a two dollar bargain at the fifteen dollar level, you missed your chance of getting that bigger bargain later. So it is generally a good idea to spread out where you're going to play to get that. Granted, of course, I don't want to have three one on dollar outfielders at the end because, as Ruvain said, that they're pretty much garbage at the end. And the playing time matters. You're getting a lot of outfielders platooned, but then you're getting a lot of these middle infielders where or, or corners or these multi-positional players that are getting more playing time because they're multi-positioned at the bottom of, of that slot. Uh, so I think the, the best use of it is to really plan for uh, going up and down and let the values come to you and not deciding uh, intentionally to do one way or the other, but knowing that pushing up is probably a little bit better idea on the whole, especially because the replacement level is lower. Um, all right, it's time to do our AT to start our ATC undervalued players. The ATC projections just came out today, and what we do on the show is uh, we, we preview this by position because it organizes ourselves, and we don't go through the entire player pool or rank them and say here's the top ten shortstops, what do you think? What do you think of this guy? Um, instead, we focus on just a couple of players that ATC preliminarily identifies them as a possible bargain, and then we take a deep dive and say, you know, I think that guy actually makes sense of the bargain where maybe, hey, we don't really agree with that bargain there. Let's not focus on it. Um, so let's go through a bunch of players here, and tonight we're going to do the catcher position. 
Um, just to note, in terms of numbers, uh, I'll often quote, he's a this-dollar player, or he's going in this round. I'm going to be talking in general about a 15-team mixed 5x5 league, an NFBC-style league. Um, I know that everyone plays in a different format. There are people who play in 10-team leagues. I, uh, I play in 10-team leagues as well. But we have to have some standard to, to say numbers. And because NFBC has a very good, robust ADP, it's very good to compare to markets. So you'll hear me talking about that. Before we start the player catcher pool, well, now it's time for the Injury Gurus Trivia of the Week. Well, as we're going to start talking about catchers, the first catcher we're actually going to be talking about is Yasmani Grandal. Last year, the top five home run, home run hitters leading their position in catcher were um, Salvador Perez, Mike Zunino, Will Smith, Gary Sanchez, Yasmani Grandal was number five. The top RBI guys for catchers last year, Salvador Perez, Will Smith, JT Ramuto, Yadier Molina, Mike Zunino, and, Yasmiel, uh, and Yasmani Grandal was sixth. So my question today is this. Where did Grandal rank in at-bats for catchers last year? Oh, he was hurt for a while, so it was yes, not was. very high. Uh, I don't know exactly where. I mean, I just know that he missed a lot, missed part of the middle part of the season. Um, uh, I'm going to say 8th, ninth, or 10th, somewhere in that range. I don't know, though. Okay, I'll go a little bit lower. I'll go, I'm going to say 16th. He was ranked 28th. He only had 279 at-bats and still hit 23 homers, 62 RBIs with 60 runs. He may not have the best average. His K rate was down. His walk rate was up last year. His Babbitt was a little unlucky. He was at 246. He's a little older. He's now 33. He only played 93 games. That's what the 279 at-bats come from. And he's projected to bat in the middle of that potent White Sox lineup. Most of the metrics were actually pretty stale for his whole career, except his home run to fly ball rate went up. 10% while his actual fly ball rate stayed basically the same. So there's a chance that you can get a good value here because you know what? If he gets more than those 279 at bats, you can get more than those 23 home runs. You, you know what average you're going to get. And at and if you want a top catcher, he could be a top five catcher, even a top three catcher this year. Yeah. I mean, he's going roughly where Salvador Perez went last year. It's hard to make a profit on Salvador Perez this year. His price is so high. Uh, but this is a, a guy who, as, as Ruvain mentioned, uh, you know, is there, his barrel rate is up. He's got a great contact rate, great walk rate. Um, you know, uh, we talk a lot about the ATC interprojectional metrics, the volatility metrics. He's as steady as he goes there. Um, his standard deviation is 1.7 in terms of value, uh, which means projections agree on him. Um, he's so solid, and the price is just a little bit lower than the market than what we think the indicated price is. It might be a nice, solid number one in a two-catcher league for you to do because there is a market premium in catcher. You're not paying all of it by getting Grandal. Do you agree on this value, on this potential value, I should say, Todd? Yeah, absolutely. Now, his you mentioned high run, home run per fly ball. His, his home run, his ground ball and fly ball ratio stayed the same, so his swing path stayed the same. But his average exit velocity on fly balls was up about two miles an hour which explains the home run per fly ball. Whether that was because he wasn't as, as, as taxed lax season, because this was actually the case for a lot of catchers, I don't know. And can he sustain it? I don't know. But I, to me, I agree, Ruben, that there's some latent power there, that if he can maintain the elevated 
in your case, home run per fly ball, but the, the root of it is average, average exit velocity on fly balls. There is another level of power there. I, yeah, I have him, um, let's see, his overall, overall ADP, when I last looked it up, was about 109. I have him uh, a, a lot lower than that in my ranks. But I do the, the the pricing adjustment for catchers, and I'm not so sure that the uh, that the drafters do the same. Next catcher I want to talk about is Tyler Stevenson of the Cincinnati Reds. He actually lost a qualified at first base. Not that that really matters. Most <laughs> You would not draft him and put him in the first base lot. What I like about him is he is a high batting average player. Batted 286 last year. 294 the year before. ATC projects him as a 270 batter with 14 homers, 62 runs, 57 RBIs. Uh, his contact rate is 18%. It has been um, going in the 11th round. Is this uh, a good bargain for you, Todd? And might you even prefer Tyler Stevenson to to uh, Grandal? Uh, well, I really you you've hit on two guys that. And you you don't even use my stuff in the ATC, and nope. I agree with the, with the with the result in that these both guys are I have them ranked ahead of the market, or yeah, I would they're both to me anyway where they're currently being taken. Uh, it says a lot to me that Cincinnati traded Barnhart. They're gonna it's Stevenson's job. He's the bell cow. I don't see anybody else that's gonna even come close to taking any any playing time from him. There is some. He could he could increase the power. You mentioned the 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 Babbitt the line drive. He's, line drives it's, it's it's not a particular sticky uh, trait, but he has a penchant for hitting ground balls and line drives, which will prop the batting average up. So yeah, I like Tyler Stevenson a lot. He's going to have the volume. He's got a great park, and he's going to be hitting unless Cincinnati does something weird and you know spend money. He's going to be hitting a good part of their order. Yeah, Ruvain, do you disagree? I disagree a little bit only because last year his ground ball rate was close to 50. Now that can get him more hits, but he's a catcher who's hitting the ball on the ground. That's a little bit concerning for me. When I hear when I hear a, a catcher hitting the ball on the ground, I hear double play inning over, no RBIs or anything like that. But he does hit it for average, which is good. But a lot of times when people want a, a catcher, a number one catcher or number two, they're looking for a 20 home run catcher. You're not going to or 25 home run catcher with a low average. This is not the typical catcher. This is you're going to get an average. You may maybe get 10, 15 home runs out of him, but he's more of a contact hitter. And again, if he can limit those ground balls, he'll have uh, and hit more line drives. He'll be better off. Next catcher is Mitch Garver. Garver, according to the ATC projections, is a nice bargain. He's an $8 player going for $4. He's going in the 16th round right now in the NFBC ADP. We're talking he's a 20-homer 20, 20 type catcher. Uh, 240 batting average, but still has plenty of value with good run production statistics. Um, the nice thing about Mitch Garver, he's got a very low intra-standard deviation of 0.36, meaning his categories are relatively balanced. You know, if he if he somehow gets injured versus a different catcher, you're not finding replacement. You you can find anybody. There's no nobody is going to adversely balance him. Um, you know, you're not missing a whole chunk of this, whole chunk of runs, whole chunk of homers. He really provides a nice flavor for the typical catcher. Um, you know, last year he in 200 at bats he hit 13 homers. My God, uh, imagine if he plays all that much more. I haven't projected for. 370 at-bats. Sounds like a little bit on the high side. My only uh, uh, 
objection with my projection system is I think the at-bats are a little bit high for him. He's never done that type of thing. But even if he only goes for 310, 320, still a bargain, and somebody who I think I'd be comfortable taking as a number one catcher. Do you agree with that, Todd? Nope. Finally, we disagree. No, okay. I think there's a lot of risk in Garver. Um, I think that the at-bats are high. The injury-prone, injury-prone, I don't know, but he he had a bunch of injuries last year, and he's got a quality backup with Ryan Jeffers. Right now, if they both stay healthy, to me it's a 55-45, and I'm not sure which guy's on the highest side of that. And so I, I, I think that Garver is a playing time risk, and the power is there. A high average exit velocity on fly balls, but he also has a high strikeout rate, so... Um, you mentioned that the variance amongst projections is pretty small. I, I can guess I can see it. No, actually, are, it's high. The variance among projections. Uh, yeah, I, I think between, it's going to be high. Yeah, so between projections, uh, it's very high. So projections are not agreeing on Mitch Garver at all. Okay, what I'm saying okay. is categorically he's balanced, so he's not hurting your okay, category. Yeah. I, I, I see him as a risk, and I— if if I'm not avoiding him, I, be, I pretty much have him ranked with the market. So it's just it's just one of the I'll take a catcher now. I don't to me I don't have him down as a bargain, and I think it's just because I might be shying. I may have fewer plate appearances just because of the injuries last year and the quality backup in Ryan Jeffers. Yeah, and to note that most of the disagreement has to do a lot with the playing time, uh, it, which is why the projections, why, why I'm getting a high uh, risk associated with the projectional standard deviation. Yep. Ruben, and I agree, and I, agree, I agree with Todd with this because okay. he's only played 100 games once, and that was back in 2018. That was 103 games. And Brian Jeffers is a good backup catcher. Minnesota, a couple of years ago, they were playing three catchers. It was a three-catcher rotation with uh, Williams Astudillo also. So with the way the manager and the way the – the way they deploy their catchers is not typical, so you're not going to get he's not going to get the full bulk of playing time, and that's the problem. Another issue that I found with him is that he pulls the ball 54% of the time. In this day and age with shifts, that's not that great. Now, again, he is spread out. He still will hit for a good average. He'll get you double-digit home runs. But with all those things, you know, I wouldn't be... I would be happy with Garver maybe as a number two, but I'd even consider getting Jeffers as a number two as well. You know, the one counter, though, of course, is that high-skilled players find themselves getting more playing time. If he is really hitting homers at that kind of rate, and if he manages to stay healthy, then he's going to play and you got a high-skilled guy. right? We're not, we're not arguing about his skills here. We're arguing about his playing well, time. Well, he strikes so. out 30% of the time, so there is that. He's a catcher, though. So uh, and, he's on the wrong, and he's on the wrong side of 30. He's 31, yeah. so he's not a young catcher either. Sure. Only projecting him for two forty, so that bargain of four dollars is on a two forty average. So, uh, you know that's that's the deal there. Um, let's go to the next catcher, Carson Kelly, who's an, a nice little uh, bargain. Carson Kelly has a very low volatility between projections and a very low volatility within projections. So, very not risky here. I have him as another two forty catcher, fifteen homers, just about forty five or fifty runs and RBIs. Got a very, very decent strikeout rate, closer to 20-21. Uh, he's got a good walk rate. His barrel rate 
looks in line for a catcher. Uh, the one thing to note about him, he is somewhat streaky. He's not somebody who produces every single month. The bulk of his production often gets bunched together. Um, maybe that doesn't matter for a full season. Maybe it does. Uh, but he is going all the way in the 20th round. Uh, I think it's a good second catcher play to get Carson Kelly. Thoughts, Todd? Oh, no, I agree. And I don't. we don't have to worry about Varsho taking playing time. I don't think Kelly's defense, if I'm not mistaken, has improved a lot it started out pretty good and i think it's even gotten better so no i agree he is in that bunch at the end where you we talk about if you wait to the end you don't you're not going to get the 30th you're going to get your 22nd rank guy in the 20th round and i he i definitely i have him ahead of the field as well yep uh and ruvain you and we'll also uh let's do also the next catcher of max stassi who's not too dissimilar well, first for Carson Kelly, I think I think I've been drafting him the last couple of years just for his upside because he he shows that potential in those streaks. He's only twenty seven, and I think a lot of the times that he misses time with his injuries, they're freak injuries. He's got a broken wrist, a broken finger, that type of thing. If he can stay healthy for a full season, there's no one behind him. He's going to get his playing time. His fly ball rate went up last year, but his home run to fly ball rate didn't. So if he can change his launch angle just a little bit, he may actually get some more home runs. As for Max Stassi, he's also the projected starter out in Anaheim with Matt Thace behind him. So he's going to get a ton of the playing time. Last year, he had 13 home runs and 30 R- 35 RBIs um, with a 240 average, which is not bad. You know, it, He's not a 220 hitter. He's not a 200 hitter. So it's not bad. And the lineup last year, he really didn't have that many people in the lineup behind him. So he didn't have, I mean, you know, say a catcher has protection. But that the, the, the Angel lineup toward the end of the year, the bottom lineup, did not look anything what it looked like if Mike Trout was in it or if Otani was in it literally every single day and, and not in, in playing uh, yo-yoing and back to pitching everything like that. He did hit 278 back in 2020. So he has the possibility of hitting for average. His Babbitt that year was 325, so he was a little bit lucky. But he does have that upside. He's a definite number two catcher for me yeah i mean uh, i i prefer carson kelly a lot more to stassi um stassi is the zone for me where you don't want it to fall to the bottom uh and you know you're getting him in the 21st to 22nd round uh you don't, just don't want to get that one dollar catcher but you'll take the catcher now i i could see it he's not a guy that i have to get 226 average ain't doing me any favors 15 homers, I don't know, that's, you know, also decent, but eh, his counting stats, uh, his, pr- his run production stats are okay. Um, probably going to split time. You know, he, he's he's okay-ish to me, better than a lot of the bottom ones, but I don't, I, I'm not super thrilled by him. Uh, what about you, Todd? Well, first, I'm not going to use a 90 plate appearance or bad sample and say that that's yeah. his upside with BABIP. I'm not going there with the 2020, but I will say that if you're into the $1 catching or the 23rd, you know, you could even wait. Uh, what's his ADP? It's, uh, I have him at 320. 307 so, last month in DC. So that's a 20. So you can't, you know, say sometimes you can even wait to the 24th round. Yeah, no, if I'm, if I'm, if I'm playing the, you know, the, the one, the equivalent of the $1 catching game, I'm fine with him because I have him ranked around 200. And again, that's giving the catcher bump. So overall, I have him ranked around 200. So I can wait, and I can, you know, to be safe, I can grab on the 18th or 19th if he happens to be my highest ranked catcher, and that's the route I'm going. I think the the difference with the market is, I don't think they realize that Max Stacy is the starter. Yeah, right, 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 right. No, it's it's a playing time thing, of course, for for a lot of these guys. Um, last one, Luis Torrens. I think a very similar story to Max Stassi. 
We're talking probably not even as much power, although he had 15 homers in 346 at-bats last year. Uh, t- a little Better average, though. Better average than Stassi at 240. Uh, for the price, I prefer him to Stassi. Uh, he's going in the end of the 26th round, whereas Stassi's going in the 21st. So you're getting a better batting average. You're compromising on three less homers. Uh, I-, I actually do prefer Torrens for the value over Stassi. If I want a $1 catcher, I think I'll take all the way to Terenz. Uh To me, he's a decent second catcher who has shown he can hit for something above 250 before. Todd? Yeah, I haven't ranked four spots. I mean, given rankings are, are flawed and valuations flawed and projections are flawed, I haven't ranked four spots ahead of Stassi overall, so I agree with that contention. And the thing with, you know, we're talking about playing time, we don't know what Seattle's going to do. They've got some options there. And Torrens is, is among them with Cal, Cal, Cal Raley and, and Tom Murphy. So they've they've got three catchers. I don't know what they're gonna end, what they're gonna end up doing. So that that will be that will be curious. But if you went if you take Torrens at the end and he doesn't perform, you can you can find yourself a replacement. So I'm with you. I'll take him over Stassi. But you know they're both kind of if I'm tearing them, they're like you know on top of each other. Yeah, Ruben. Yeah, I same same with me. I mean, Terenz he may get majority of the playing time. I mean, if Tom Murphy stays healthy, Tom Murphy has shown that he could be a number one catcher, but he hasn't really stayed that healthy. Terenz is also eligible at first base, which makes that a little more intriguing in case you need to fill in for a first baseman. You don't want him playing first base, but that's the way it is. And the, of all the Mariners that are coming up in their in their system, catcher is not really there. You mentioned Cal Raleigh. A little bit, but I think they're waiting on, and he's only 18, that's Harry Ford. He's so far down the pipeline that Torrens is going to be the guy. That he doesn't have to worry about his job, at least as either as a backup or even as a, as, a, as a starter. And he's proven that he can catch that pitching staff so far. So I think that he will get the bulk of the playing time this year. I want to do a couple of mailbag questions, really good ones submitted here. Um so uh, Big Al asks, wondering, and let, 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 let's do these quickly since there's, I just want to get to a lot of them. Wondering about strategy for catchers in draft and hold. We're talking like NFBC draft champions. How do you just, justify the value of plate appearances at the position when many of them come with such a low batting average? My quick answer to that, Big Al, is that if there's not that many plate appearances, the, big, the bad batting average will hurt you less. And all the other catchers are having a bad batting average at the bottom. So it doesn't really hurt you relative to everybody else. You agree, Todd? Yeah, I mean, into whatever Formula One uses, the the the, the volume gets incorporated into the formula and all flushes itself out. It's inaccurate, the the flawed the formula, but that's not you know it, it, it's the best we have. But I agree, you know, in DC in general, we've we've talked a little bit about strategy, but we've talked about a couple of of situations where there are multiple catchers in a DC. If I can draft both Minnesota guys, I love it because you're getting them cheap and you're, you know, you've got the catcher. And if one gets hurt, you have a, you know, you have a starter with the other. So I love stacking scenarios where you think it's 55, 45. I don't want to, I don't want to get Salvador Perez's backup. He's like the Maytag repairman and he's never going to play. <laughs> um, but you know, I, I will get Murphy and Torrens. I, right. I'd like, I'd like looking at uh, scenarios like that. I don't, I don't draft, catchers all that early in a draft champions in a best ball i'm all over it but in a draft champions i kind of it's kind of one of those things where eh, there's no one else yeah i'll take this you know there's no one else i'll take carson kelly you know i i because i know i'm going to get 
four, you know, I'll, I'll get my four or five one dollar catchers and play who's hot or play who's got the good matchups. Question from DT, uh, and DT was uh, sent me a picture uh, of him sporting an ATC t-shirt today <laughs> so uh happy atc day to you uh we're definitely gonna ask your question on the show here uh we'll go to ruvain first how do you approach the catcher position in a 10 a 10 man points league only one catcher starts and there's very limited bench spots should you get a top four catcher early should you make sure you get a mid-range catcher punt and go with sleepers leftovers i mean to me the answer is just get the last catcher in your last round and then just stream all year long. You agree? Yeah, hundred percent. There's no reason to spend any money on that because once it's a 10 catcher, if you're not going to get either the top one and overpay for Salvador Perez, I, I, it's, it's in a, in a, in for 10, no, you, you get the $1 catcher, you can stream, you can play the hot pick, try to pick up the hot catcher. And that's basically it. There's really nothing else to do for that. Unless, of course, you know, Salvador Perez is available in round, you know, 15 or some crazy thing like that, you know. But in general, you know, people are going to value it as just to the bottom. We'll move on to the next question, unless, Todd, you disagree with that. No, 100%. And like I said, you're going to get your seven. You're not going to get the 10th. You're going to get the guy you have ranked seventh right. as the 10th catcher. So, right. anyway. All right. Ryan asks, what catch? two questions. One, what catchers in the NL get the biggest boost in value with the potential of the NLDH looming? Let's answer that one first. I, I mean, people are going to, oh, JT Remuto, he plays a ton as it is. Oh, I'm not, I don't, I, yeah, maybe I should have looked into a little bit more. Um, I'm not sure. I, I, I don't think that I'm going to want to, I, I think, I understand the concept, but I don't think I want to jump up my catchers because of that. I think it's, it's a risky proposition to pay for a catcher because you think he's going to get, maybe, maybe Will Smith jumps up even higher than he already is. But I, I just I think it's risky. Wilson Contreras is going to play a ton anyway. If he you know he gets another fifty at bats, I don't know that you want to jump him over someone with better skills. I'll throw in three people here. Travis Darno, I think he's got some decent skills and uh he can serve as a DH. When he bats, he bats in the middle of the lineup, so they might want to use him more. Tyler Stevenson, I think he's got that high average I think they can throw him more. And Dalton Varsho, to me, can pick up some at-bats. I mean, they throw him in the outfield anyways. Um, he might he might just gain a lot of at-bats just from being in the outfield as well. He, I like that, I do like Varsho a lot as far yeah. as an answer to that question. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, the other guy, I think the other I don't know they're going to change a lot of the other guys. Darno has turned into such a good defensive catcher. I don't think he's going to lose a ton of at-bats to, to behind the plate. I'm I'm gonna double up on I'm gonna double up on Will Smith there because in the beginning of the season Max Muncy's still hurt he's not healing properly so he may not be ready if he's not ready that whole infield configuration is different and they always wanted Will Smith at bat at bat in there so they can, you can see him some playing time at first even even at first if if that's the issue and DH definitely how about Austin Austin Nola maybe to answer the question to give an answer I'll say Austin Nola all right next question that Ryan asks is. When diving into a player debate between two players and in this, at the same ADP range, at the same position, what are the best advanced stats to look at for both pitchers and hitters? Todd, I'll let you go first. There's no, there's no one, there's, there's no one size fits all answer as yeah. far as I'm concerned. Yeah. You, you have to under, you have to look at the stats that are most apropos to the type of player. If it's a power, if it's a guy I want power, I want to know the exit velocity on a fly balls. If it's a you know guy wants speed, I want to know the, the team tendency, et cetera. So I don't I don't think there is 
a one-size-fits-all answer. I think you have to look at it on a player-by-player basis. But I, you know, what I will say is I am big into component analysis, as, as we've been talking about a lot about exit velocity. To, to, look at, to look at the stat catch page and just see average exit velocity, that doesn't tell me anything. I want to know ground ball, fly ball, and, and, and line drive, and uh, et cetera. And even ground ball and line drive, um, you mentioned, Ruben, about the, the catcher. It's, I'm going to be talking about this on PitchCon coming up, if, I, if, I'm, if I'm allowed to plug that, the sure. pitcher list, uh, you know, PitchCon coming up. But it's, it's, and I've written about it, so it's not, I'm not breaking any news here. But the, um, the exit velocity on ground balls and fly balls is just, it's, and, and compared to BABIP, it's random. For the only thing that really matters is exit velocity on fly balls and power. So you, you take a look at the, the red levers and say, wow, this guy's got a high exit velocity. He should be hitting for a high batting average. It's just not the case. Yeah, I'll just I'll throw out just a couple of them. Uh, I, I, obviously, Todd is completely right. It matters what type of hitter. It's no size, one size fit all. But uh, barrel rate for me for power hitters that that's something you advanced you can look at. Stone base. I look at stone base opportunities. Look at the manager situation. That's something you can get uh, for batting average players. Strikeout rate. You know that's always a good component. Pitchers. The quickest thing to look at is K minus BB. That tells you a quick answer. Yep. And yep. Yep. It, yep. Yeah. Yep. It gets gets you there very quickly. Fastball velocity, uh, track that, see uh, what it was, what how it's going. That's another one to look at the trends. Swinging, swinging strike rate, that's another quick one to look at to see if uh, the, the strikeout rate agrees. So those are a couple for you. Uh, and uh, we'll do one more question. Michael asks, how much playing time do you think Alejandro Kirk gets for the Blue Jays? Hey, if he got 400 at-bats, he'd be a top-five option. Kirk is a great, uh, he's a highly skilled catcher. The Blue Jays have a catching dilemma. They've got three catchers and plus a, a prospect in Marrero lurking. ATC has Kirk for two, 285 at-bats, Jansen for 307, Reese McGuire for 113. And with those 285, Kirk is a $4 catcher going for about $3 about a 17th rounder. So you're right, and a lot of his value comes from plate appearances. I'm not sure that he's going to get a lot more than that with the, with the situation. Uh, the biggest way he can increase it is a trade, whether he's traded or somebody's traded out of the organization. Uh, then he would get a little bit more of the playing time. But, you know, with guys like that, you know, you got to really monitor what the Jays are doing week to week. If he's picking up extra DH at bats, if he's picking up more playing time, those skills are excellent. Uh, he's a guy that could, he's a guy that, of anybody in the catcher field, could exceed his value by a lot, much more, much quicker if he gets just a little bit more playing time. You agree, Todd? Well, yeah, of course. I, I don't agree he's a top five guy with, with 400 yeah. plate appearances. I think he's top 10. Right. Top five is a reach. I mean, but yeah, well, that's, yeah, not really, that's not really the point. Well, I mean, Toronto's in go for it mode. And if Danny Jansen hits the 223 with a little pop that he did last year, they can get by with the defense. But if he's hitting back at the 180 range, the 200 range, Kirk could get that extra playing time. It's possible. If you can, if you can pay market for Kirk, there's a lot more upside than there is downside. Agree. Do you, do you agree with that, uh, Ruby? 
I totally agree. And I think we said the exact same thing about him last year also. <laughs> I think we're all just waiting for Danny Jansen just to bottom out or get injured. Then Alejandro Kirk comes back up. Now, the one thing is that Kirk has a good bat. They can't put him at DH because their outfield is so loaded. They have no room to play him. So it's either catcher or nothing. So, I mean, I think he will get the bulk of the playing time there. Reese McGuire, and eh, not as much. But but for some reason, they do, the, the Toronto organization seems to love Danny Jansen. Otherwise... Otherwise, Alondra Kirk would have been in there already. Yeah, I can't understand it, and I'm I'm a Danny Jansen hater. Uh, I I just can't see why. You know, look at the batting averages: two o two forty seven, two o seven, one eighty three, two twenty three. Uh, you got you got a guy in Kirk who's gonna have actually a really good batting average. What are you waiting for? Is is the is the? Oh, he's defense... not a great defender. Right, right. But is the I was gonna say is the defense so much better that uh, that you know you can't increase the playing time? Uh, really depends what you need. Maybe it is because the Blue Jays have such a great lineup. Hey, you know we need we need the defense to help out the pitcher more. Uh, maybe that's the theory. Maybe that's the theory. Uh, I'd say uh, two eighty five. What ATC says, uh, I'd put my money on the over for three hundred, but not much more than that. All right, uh, moving injury report. You're, you go ahead. Okay, I only have two players because it's so hard to get stuff out now because of the lockout <laughs> and everything. Um, but Jake Myers, he actually came out. He came up with the Astros last year and was and had a chance to actually win the opening uh, job for this year. But he had surgery this past November for a torn labrum in his left shoulder. He will not be ready for the beginning of the 2022 season. Um, and the question would be how much playing time and, and how quickly he recovers from that. Another guy is Sixto Sanchez. This is how we're now getting our injury information by video via Instagram. So Sixto Sanchez was shown throwing or just having a catch. He had surgery to repair a capsule tear in his throwing shoulder. Um, it did not look like he was throwing comfortably. It did not look like he was at all through using much power at all. I'm a little bit, uh, not a little bit, I'm very concerned about that. And the fact that there is a lockout going on, you don't have the normal training staff. You don't have the normal medical staff that you would have because the, the, the players have nothing to do with teams right now. They're just, they're being locked out. So they're not getting the same treatment and it may hinder players like Sixto Sanchez from coming back sooner. Interesting. Todd, do you have an Instagram account? No, I do not. All right. Well, that settles that one there. Uh, anyways, that is the end of our show. Uh, this was a great one. Uh, as you all see, Todd really knows his stuff. Um, helped navigate the player pool. Did our start to the eight to the undervalued projections with catchers. Uh, fantastic stuff. You can follow him on Twitter at Todd Zola. As he mentioned, he writes for ESPN, Rotowire, and, of course, at Masters Bowl. Uh, did I forget anything? Uh, you want to plug anything else, uh, Todd? Uh, real quick, I uh, do the Saturday uh, show with Clay Link from Rotowire on Sirius uh, MLB Sirius ML Sirius MLB Network Radio, not the Fantasy Channel, the, uh, the MLB Network Radio. We're on Saturdays from four to five p.m. Um, every Saturday. So that's uh, the other the other thing to plug. And soon enough, hopefully, they'll invite me back to the show, uh, the Fantasy Show, on Sundays. But we'll start. We'll we'll, we'll go just with the with the Saturday one for now. Uh, that's right, and I, I believe that I actually guest-hosted uh, when you were out sometime over last summer, I think, uh, on that show on MLB Network. So, Yep, absolutely. Th thank you for having me as the replacement for, for you. I hope I lived up to the to your standard on, on that show there. I, th I think you did okay. I think, I think we're all right. Yeah, we'll, we'll try to get you on. Uh, we're, having, we're having Nick Pollock on this week to talk about PitchCon, but I'm sure we'll, be, uh, we'll get you on Talk with ATC in the next couple of weeks. 
Sounds good. Yeah, and you mentioned PitchCon. Uh, you'll be on it, Todd. Uh, I'll be on it as well. Um, my, my tradition, of course, it's a three. This is the third year of PitchCon that uh, PitcherList and Nick Pollock sets up. Uh, my tradition is actually to go on the very first presentation right after Nick Pollock, so he gets me a really good lead. So thank you for that, Nick. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, so, ni hey, nice placement. I love it. Um, so uh, looking forward, uh, going to talk about the data of baseball and a little bit about projections. So uh, stick around for that. Um, Ruvain, why don't you plug your stuff? You can follow me on Twitter at MLB Injury Guru, where I tweet out injury updates as they come. And I guess I'm at the point where I'm tweeting, retweeting Instagram videos. <laughs> um, and you can also follow me on Rotoballer dur during the season. I have an injury update, injury article every week to get you ready for the free agent pool. Yep, and uh, you know me, I'm Ariel Cohen. I'm writing over at Fangraphs, Rotographs, CBS Sportsline, and over at Rotoballer. The ATC projections are here, and they're at all three of those sites. You can get on it, uh, as we mentioned at the top of the show, uh, so please do. And you can follow me on Twitter at ATCNY, and of course, you can listen to us right here on the Beat the Shift podcast, presented by Fangraphs. We'll get you covered and ready for the 2022 draft season, which is, uh, hey, it's starting already. So there you go. Once again, thank you so much to our guest this week, Todd Zola. And from all of us here at Beat the Shift, have a good one. See you next time. Thanks for listening to the Beat the Shift podcast presented by Fangress. Follow us on Twitter at beat underscore shift underscore pod.